Hello and welcome to Birkbeck Voices, the monthly podcast from Birkbeck, University of London. I'm Andrew Youngson, Media and Publicity Officer, and I'll be your host for this edition, which comes to you from a sunny Gordon Square. Each month we are out and about in the college, speaking to academics, students and members of staff across our three regular platforms. Research Focus, which this month features Professor Matt Cook, who will be talking about his recent study on queer domesticities. Next, Birkbeck alumna Miriam Phillips talks about her educational journey in the Birkbeck People section. And lastly, Professor Linda Need takes this month's The Calendar slot, talking about her involvement in the forthcoming Fallen Women exhibition at the Foundling Museum. Enjoy! First up, research focus. Professor Matt Cook of Birkbeck's Department of History, Classics and Archaeology is a prominent voice in the study of sexuality throughout history. His latest book, Queer Domesticities, Homosexuality and Home Life in 20th Century London, examines the ways in which gay men have made, experienced and described their homes in London. It also takes a closer look at the term queer in its broader sense. Professor Cook stopped by the studio to talk about the book and the research process behind it. Okay, and welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thank you very much for finding some time to join us in the studio. Not at all. To jump straight in then, to talk about uh, your recent publication, what exactly do we mean by the term queer domesticities? It seems quite a a, a broad-ranging term in the way that you've come to it. Um, You know, what forms can this take? So... It is a broad-ranging term, and I guess I was thinking about it in two ways. One is in terms of the people I was looking at. So I was primarily looking at men who had uh, sexual and emotional relationships, primarily with other men. And these are people who might have defined themselves as homosexual or gay or as inverted, but also other men who didn't, who maybe lived with a with a with a with a male friend or were married but had um, relationships with with men beyond those beyond those marriages. So it was a it was a kind of way of thinking about homemaking amongst these group these men without kind of tying it down too specifically to gay men or um um or, or, or to or to or to to a narrow sense of identity. Um, but the other thing I was trying to do, I think, was um, about questioning. Um, domesticity and homemaking and family a little bit so the histories of those things have tend to be ri- t- tended to be written in very straight terms mm-hmm. um, and queer men get very little mention it's as if they don't have um, a home or a family um, or haven't had homes and families um, and I was quite keen to, to queer that a little bit in, in two ways one by um, opening up this history um, but also by um, suggesting that most straight homes are also a little queer, and most straight families are also a little queer in in one way or another. So I guess that was I was kind of thinking in 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 a couple of ways about the, uh, about queer domesticities and using that title to kind of um, kind of touch base with those yeah. things. How did you come to this particular piece of research? What what was the route in? Uh, well, I mean. I came into this in in two ways. One was um, about what was happening in terms of contemporary um, campaigning and political debate. I mean, very much since the sort of end of the 90s, we've had um, campaigns and and, and legislation on civil partnership, on marriage, on adoption. And the gaze, the kind of um, scrutinising gaze in terms of um, gay men has been very much on the way in which they're constructing relationships and home lives in a way that really hadn't been the case before. Um, And it was as if this was new. It was as if gay men hadn't had children before or hadn't um, been closely involved in homemaking and so on before. Um, And I wanted to kind of historicise that and think about the ways in which um, 
uh, queer men have negotiated these things and made home and thought about family and engaged with those things. So in a way, it was about kind of historicizing the contemporary and thinking about what what lay behind that. Um, and I was also very aware of the way in which we've tended to make queer history, which has been in relation to tended to be in relation to public spaces, so to um, social scenes, to campaigning, to pride marches, um, to those outdoor spaces. Um, and, it, and, and that includes my own work, so my own work on, 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 on queer London, very much related to those kind of um, scenes beyond the home. And it really started to occur to me that actually people also anchor their sense of self and um, negotiate um, ideas of community and friendship and love and and, and, and and so on through and in home spaces. And so I wanted to see how those spaces worked in terms of um, queer self-making across the 20th century. So so the, the methodology that you took into studying this and, and pulling together all the materials mm-hmm. um, that we can read now, um, what, did, what form did that take? What did you do? Well, so... The problem with this as a topic, as in many topics, is that it's it's huge. So mm. every everybody has a relationship to home, even if they're homeless. Yeah. So even if only aspirationally. So the where to start with this? And so what I ended up doing was looking at a series of case studies across the 20th century and looking in really quite a lot of detail um, at the way in which a series of men made and thought about homes and families in different kinds of contexts. Um, and so I looked um, at um, men who were very much invested in the idea of making beautiful homes and collecting and so on. That was one area. And I, I looked at sort of three or four case studies in relation to that in order to draw out some of those ideas. Um, I looked at um, three or four case studies uh, of men who had thought carefully about ideas of family um, across the 20th century. And then I looked um, at men who were poor or working class and at, at how they made home um, in the context largely of the post-war period. And finally, I looked um, at a series of um, of, of case studies um, of men in the post-1970 period when home and family were much more overtly politicised. And so this idea of um, squatting and communes and so on and how that might relate to a kind of difference um, in homemaking. And across that I looked at, you know, I used oral history and literature and diaries and memoirs. Yeah. And it was a very, it's a great, uh, great project for being exceptionally a nosy about work, it. <laughs> in terms of case studies, you mean doing interviews? Um, well, it, I mean, I for the work I did on the post-1950 period, I did a series of oral history, um, um, pro- I, I undertook a series of oral history projects mm. um, on the 50s and then on a squatting community in Brixton. Um, but obviously a lot of people were, were, were dead from the previous yeah, sure. period, so I was using um, um, memoirs, photographs, diaries, um, bits of material culture, so actual homes and looking at the way in which people had structured and organised their home spaces. Um, So it was really interesting for me in terms of bringing lots of different source material together. And I'd not worked with oral history before, and that was a real joy, actually, a real Mm. pleasure. And something that is now, you count as being within your toolkit. This is something you want to pursue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it was this project was very much a move for me from being a Victorianist primarily and into the 20th century. And part of that move um, involved, you know, talking to people about their living history 
um, and about about their own uh, younger selves. Um, and it was really interesting for me because it started, I think, to make history for me feel like a slightly different thing um, and feel a different sense of responsibility towards it. I mean, these were people that I'd sat with. Yeah. Um, and so you suddenly felt much more responsible for um, what I was writing and, and how I was writing about them than maybe maybe I did, maybe I should have done for, with people that were... So suddenly were, thrust into the world of journalism as opposed uh, to being a historian. In, in, well, in, in, a, in a way, and certainly some of those questions about those dynamics between interviewer and interviewee were really, really interesting for me. Sure. Was there anything that, that surprised you particularly about the findings? I mean, there must have been a lot that, that interested you that was completely yeah. new to you. Anything in particular that surprised you? I think one of the most interesting thing, maybe surprising things for me, was the way in which um, sexuality um, in a way got downgraded for me in the writing of this book. So if you look at gay lives or queer lives through social spaces through gay bars and gay clubs then of course the thing that's to the fore is gayness mm -hmm. and whatever whatever that means and however that's been structured yeah. for those for those men but what's so interesting when you look at home is you know um class ethnicity um religion um family networks all of these other things come much more clearly into the frame and you start to realize the complexity and intersectionality mm -hmm. of, of these men's subjectivities so in a way this book um, is as much about class mm -hmm. as it is about sexuality and the way in which class modulates the way we might think about sexuality mm -hmm. um, so i think that was really interesting for me um, the the extent to which sexuality gets sex then gets displaced in a book about queer men, mm. um, but then that follows from what you're saying yeah. about queer transcending sexuality and and being something I think that applies to so yeah, many different. I things. think that's right. I think I think the other thing that was really interesting for me was the the complexity of these men. So this idea that you know that that one is radical or reactionary or mm. whatever you know. People are contradictory. And so, you know, people were using home um, and making home and living their domestic lives in ways that allowed them both to stand out and be distinct and be radical, mm -hmm. and also in ways that allowed them to fit in. Mm -hmm. You know, if we think about home life being absolutely central to ideas of British or English identity, um, then actually it becomes a really important space um, for people that are trying to get by in their everyday lives, you know. Um, and so there's something, some, there were some really interesting ways in which, which men found themselves able to, to make really strident statements in one respect, through their home or the way they were living their lives and yet in other ways might be seen to be quite conservative or yeah. quite reactionary. It's quite interesting what you're talking about complexity. I mean, complexity is, is really the enemy of, of stereotyping. And, <laughs> and, and so what stereotypes um, did you come across and also explode within the, mm -hmm. the part of the research that you're doing? I mean, this was really interesting. In a way, it was one of my starting points for the project um, was the contradictory stereotypes around um, queer men on her, and home. So on the one hand, there's this idea of queer, queer men being exiles from kin, exiles from the domestic, the idea that they're destroyers or disruptors of family, mm -hmm. um, and that these are undomesticated passions that don't belong in the sanctified home space. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, there's this very strident stereotype about um, gay men making the perfect curtains and the perfect quiche um, <laughs> and actually being the quintessential homemakers um, and, 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 and populating professions like interior design and so on and that they just have this intrinsic ability apparently so these were kind of two kind of stereotypes that I think were rather intention for me um, and that I was keen to explore and I think one of the really interesting things about the research for me was that yes the case studies do explode those stereotypes and yet 
they have real power. Mm-hmm. Um, because when stereotypes like that have such a trenchant place in, in a culture, then men were having to negotiate them, either to reject them, to draw on them, to play with them. Um, they had to respond to people's assumptions. You know, So it was really interesting working... Um, I worked quite a lot with gay news in the 70s and 80s, and they did some work on the difficulty for gay men of finding homes in the rental market. Mm-hmm. What was really interesting was they actually found there was the reverse amongst rental agencies who said, oh, actually, we really like having gay tenants because they're so clean and tidy. It's <laughs> <laughs> like great stereotypes to be able to draw on if you're looking for a home. Well, well, that's, well, that's right. So there's something really interesting about the way in which, you know, whilst on the one hand this book is about debunking stereotypes, it's also about the way in which stereotypes circulate and people use and deploy and reject and negotiate them so it's not that stereotypes don't have meaning they have meaning even if they're not uh, true mm-hmm. at, at, at one level yeah. and just lastly what's next for you what, what can we expect to read in in two five years time <laughs> about you so i'm working on i mean i've got a couple of things on the go one is a i'm waiting to hear on a funding bid for a major project um, looking at lo- uh, kind of queer local history um, and looking at brighton um, Leeds, Manchester and Plymouth in comparative perspective. That's a project I'd be undertaking with um, Alison Oren from Leeds, Leeds uh, Beckett University. Um, but I'm also working, beginning to do some work on the AIDS crisis and in particular a kind of history from below and at different kinds of response. So at the moment I'm working on um, um, the kind of general, uh, uh, the general backlash against gay men um, during this period and, um, and at what kind of lay behind that. Um, so looking at kind of the emotional response to the AIDS crisis from beyond the gay community. Fascinating. Yeah. I'm looking forward to, to reading that. Great. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And now on to the second feature of the podcast, Birkbeck People. Following your interest into higher education is something which can happen at any age, whether it's before you step on the career ladder, as a supplement to your job, or as a way to delve into any subject area upon retirement. I recently caught up with Birkbeck alumna Miriam Phillips, who is an excellent example of the latter. Despite leaving school at age 15 with no academic qualifications, Miriam's strong work ethic and sharp mind led her into a career early on as a junior archivist in an architecture firm, then on to bookkeeping, then into a fascinating job doing tax returns for the rich and famous. A keen interest in history and research followed Miriam throughout her life, ultimately leading her to return to education upon retirement at the age of 60. Sitting in her garden in Wimbledon recently, Miriam told me about experiencing higher education in her retirement years. My name is Miriam Phillips, I'm 68 years old. Uh, I did a master's degree at Birkbeck in the history of the British Isles and it was a follow-on from a bachelor's degree in history that I had done at the Open University. I chose Birkbeck because it was suggested to me by one of my OU tutors who thought I would do well at Birkbeck. I loved every minute of it. Um, I loved the experience of being taught. It's hard to choose my favourite pieces of work during the course because I got such a lot out of all of them. One course I did, called, uh, which was entitled Vice and the Victorians, that did follow on from a dissertation I had done for my bachelor's degree at the Open University when I 
did um, an extended essay on a Victorian social reformer called Josephine Butler. Um, and she was very concerned with um, vice and prostitution and so on in the world in which she lived. Another aspect of the course at Birkbeck that I enjoyed was a course run by uh, Professor uh, Joanna Burke on um, the cultural history of war. And that again I found fascinating because it dealt with not so much the military aspects of the war, but the effects on the individual men and their families. And um, her research on the subject, I really got absorbed by it. But for my dissertation, <laughs> I, went back to, uh, I went back to my own roots and I did my dissertation on the Irish War of Independence, 1919 to 1921 which um, resonated with me because my parents lived that and I've been brought up on uh, tales of their experiences as young people during that conflict. And it, I found it really interesting to look at it from a distance, as it were. I do read around my subjects, my various in historical interests, quite a lot. And I'm certainly uh, very interested in uh, Anglo-Irish history, the early part of the 20th century. Uh, and now that more and more uh, government papers have been released, I'm getting an entirely different uh, perspective on things. Um, because I was taught that period of Anglo-Irish history in an Irish primary school, which is you know, quite different from what I'm finding out now. <laughs> I think I've been fortunate in that I just I'm happy, you know. I mean, I've obviously had difficulties in my life like everybody else, um, but I've been fortunate enough to be able to work through them. Um, and, and here I am. I'm, I'm quite content. I've, I've always been very fortunate in the jobs I've had. Uh, you know, good jobs um, seem to have come my way, and it's, it's hugely important if you have to go to work to have a job that you enjoy. And I have been that fortunate. Last up this episode, it's the calendar. During the Victorian era, the figure of the fallen woman was popularly portrayed in art, literature and the media. For moralists of the time, these were important tools in warning against the consequences of losing one's virtue. Reflecting on these depictions and putting them in the context of real-life historical accounts, a powerful forthcoming exhibition at the Foundling Museum aims to explore the myth and reality of the fallen woman in Victorian Britain. Running from the 25th of September until the 3rd of January, the exhibition is being curated by Birkbeck's Professor Linda Need in collaboration with the team at the Foundling Museum. Professor Need dropped by the studio recently where my colleague Fiona McLeod and I quizzed her about the background to the exhibition and what visitors can look forward to experiencing this autumn. Okay, and welcome to the podcast, Linda. Thank you very much for joining us. Just to begin then, what can you tell us about the Fallen Women exhibition and what items will be on display in what format? I think there are two main elements of the exhibition. Um, the first one, uh, I suppose you could say, are the Victorian paintings. Um, there are engravings. Uh, there are stereoscopic photographs, um, all on this theme of the Fallen Woman. The second element is the extraordinary archive belonging to the 19th century Foundling Hospital. 
And uh, this is a collection of uh, Victorian um, forms that were completed by unmarried mothers in the middle of the 19th century who felt unable uh, to uh, take care of their babies and who applied to the hospital um, to take their babies from them and to bring them up. There is um, an extraordinary amount of material um, and some of it in the voice of the women themselves. So what this exhibition does is to bring together two very different kinds of sources. It brings together Victorian art that took up this subject of the fallen woman and it puts it next to um, this amazing archive of um, historical documents. Can you tell us how the exhibition came about? I've worked for many years on, um, I suppose you'd call it Victorian visual culture. It's not just Victorian art, but it's all the kind of uh, media such as photography and engravings and paintings and so on that were produced during uh, the 19th century. And I've worked specifically on, on images of women in the Victorian period. Um, I know the people at the Foundling uh, Museum very well. In fact, the director of the Foundling Museum, Caro Howell, um, is a graduate from the MA in History of Art uh, at Birkbeck. So there is a there is. It's almost like everything came together, and there was this wonderful synergy about the exhibition. And we just had one of those conversations where someone said to me, "Why don't you guest curate an exhibition on the fallen woman?" Um, there, there hasn't been uh, an exhibition dedicated to this subject um, before. And the wonderful thing is that where it is being held at the Foundling Museum is actually on the site where the women um, were interviewed, uh, where they picked up their forms, uh, submitted them after completion and were interviewed uh, before their babies were accepted. So it's it's sort of almost like there's this kind of psychic geography to it as well. Um, it just made sense at um, a number of different levels. It just uh, seems to add to the poignancy of, of the, um, the exhibition. I mean, looking at the artwork that will be on display, um, can you describe a little bit about um, how these women were depicted? Yeah. Um, the fallen woman isn't... A prostitute. Uh, neither clearly is she a respectable woman, but she is a woman of some respectability who has lost that identity, who has lost that position, but perhaps might be able to regain it. So you can divide the paintings of fallen women into different kind of moments in their in the life story, if you like. So seduction, the moment of seduction is uh, quite common in the paintings of the period. And in the exhibition, we've got uh, a painting, for example, called On the Brink by Alfred Elmore. That's coming from the Fitzwilliam in Cambridge. And it shows um, a well-dressed young woman sitting outside um, some very notorious gambling rooms in uh, Germany. And it's clear that she's lost her money in the gambling rooms. 
and a man is leaning through a window towards her. And on either side of her, she has either the lily for purity or the passion flower for desire. So there's the sense uh, in the painting that respectability and purity is a choice between the lily and the passion flower. We've also got a, a fantastic painting coming from the Museum of London called Breakfasting Out, and it shows a coffee stall in London um, with a milliner's apprentice who holds a hat box and she's stopping to take a cup of coffee while this real swell gentleman stands looming over her. So again, in the paintings, there's this sense of uh, seduction, vulnerability, choice, whereas the stories in the women's petitions uh, often read very differently. So were these paintings ad- ad- admired at the time, both for the sort of social relevance or modern-day realism? Uh, yeah, they were admired um both for their subject matter, but also for the way that they were painted. Um, as, as you can see from the way I've been describing these paintings, they're very detailed and the viewer is expected to be able to read the narrative by looking at the details in the paintings. So uh, conventionally, um, academic Victorian painting is a uh, highly detailed, very smoothly finished, so that the details are legible. Um, And critics would enjoy a little bit of uncertainty, but would be would expect to be able to to understand the narrative by looking at the paintings. Can a modern day audience understand that narrative? What do the paintings tell us now? I think um, We do have to uh, try and understand, if you like, the period I of the 19th century. Um, Audiences in the 21st century can't be expected to know and won't know all of the references in um, the paintings and and other images. In a sense, that's the point of the exhibition. Um, It's to reintroduce people to um, this social world, moral world, aesthetic world, um, and to enable them to understand what was going on in the images and what was at stake. Talking about the contemporary setting of this of this exhibition, um, there's a sound installation element to the exhibition. Um, mm. So in terms of, of using a modern technology, what, what can we expect from this? Yeah, this is, um, if you like... Uh, the the least predictable element in the exhibition, but one that I sort of conceived right at the beginning. Um, and this is the reason why. I think it's very easy for modern audiences to look at Victorian culture and see it through a haze of kind of heritage and, you know, uh, costume drama and visits to National Trust properties and it all becomes very cosy. Now actually there is quite a dark element to uh, this exhibition uh, which is that some of the forms that the women filled out tell stories of um, violent assault 
um, of rape and abandonment. Um, and there is a kind of tension between what's going on in the paintings and what might be going on in the petitions. So I didn't want this to be a kind of heritage experience where you just felt um, that your ideas about the Victorians were confirmed and that was that. I wanted something a little bit uncomfortable to happen in the exhibition. And so um, I began to discuss having a sound installation with um, a musician and composer that I know um, and who's worked both with um, Kylie Minogue and Simply Red, <laughs> but also the Welsh National Opera. Right. Um, and I began to talk to him about using the words of the women as we found them on the petitions and forms and treating them in a way that would almost feel like the spaces were being haunted by them, that the words would make the walls come alive and you wouldn't immediately be able to hear what they were saying. We might distort the sound, we might repeat phrases. They're not being, the words aren't being dramatically acted, but there's just going to be this sense of discomfort through the sound installation. And we've had Adrian Dunbar, Maxine Peake, I mean, really amazing actors and actresses who've given their time uh, freely to us in order to contribute to this installation. And um, we're going to hear the first version of it next week. So um, it's quite exciting, yeah, really. Don't know quite yet. <laughs> I don't quite know what to expect yet. But if it works, it will be the thing that just unsettles mm. an easy consumption of the exhibition. Yeah. It's, I, I love the idea that you're actually being slightly unnerved by your sensory involvement with the exhibition Absolutely. as well as yeah. what, you, what, you're, what you're seeing. Um, it's going to be fascinating. Yeah, I mean, just, just to wrap up, can you tell us a little bit, I mean, what is involved in putting on or pulling together an exhibition like this? You talk about bringing in well-known actors, musicians, getting these paintings, getting these artefacts all together. Can you describe to us a little bit what it takes to put something yeah. like this on? Well, I am uh, a guest curator um, and at the Foundling Museum there um, there is a curatorial staff. It's a small staff and they do an amazing job of changing temporary exhibitions, you know, two or three times a year. Um, I was invited to put together a kind of wish list of um, the sort of images that um, I would like to include in the exhibition. We have to be realistic. There is a limited budget, as there is in most museums and galleries uh, at the moment. Um, so we had to see where these images would be coming from. And actually, we've been very successful in um, crowdfunding through the Art Fund website and through grants and uh, research awards and so on. So we, we are bringing works from um, America um, as well as from throughout Britain. Um, we also then went to the um, London Metropolitan Archive, which is where all the Foundling Hospital archives are and began to choose what we wanted um, in terms of what we wanted to include in the exhibition. 
once you have your loans together and your permissions, you've then got to begin to think of it uh, in terms of how you'll hang the pictures, uh, what your story is, basically. Um, and it's very, it's very interesting. It's a kind of slightly nerve wracking, but really um, exciting way of working, especially for me, because I normally work on my own and I write books and articles. Um, so working with a team and thinking spatially, thinking visually, um, writing very short labels and and panels. You know, you don't want to make people read too much, but you want to let them know, uh, you know, what the key points are. Yeah, so it's it sort of develops over about a year of of work, um, and then the nice thing will be a glass of wine and the opening night. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> And that's it for this month's edition of Birkbeck Voices. As ever, we'd love to hear your thoughts and find out what you'd like to listen to in future editions. Just drop us a line at communications at bbk.ac.uk. Bye for now, and thanks for listening.